Thank you, Brents. Thank you for being here today. We are continuing with our series where we're going through the book of James together. This is the third week of that. And uh, we are finishing up today this section at the beginning of James about trials. We've been looking at trials a couple of different ways. And, uh, and so we're finishing that up uh, today. In Greek mythology, uh, there is an island known as the land of the sirens. Maybe you're familiar with this. A siren is or was a half bird, half human who could sing so beautifully that they were able to lure sailors to their island and shipwreck them. And the most famous story in Greek mythology probably about the sirens is from the Odyssey. And in the Odyssey, Odysseus knows of the danger of the sirens, so he has a plan. He puts wax in the ears of his, of his men so that they can't hear the singing. But he wanted to hear the singing of the sirens, and so instead of putting wax in his ears, he tied himself uh, with rope to the mass of, of the ship, and he told his men that they were not to obey him or untie him no matter what he said or, or, or what he did. And so the men had wax in their ears, and Odysseus was tied to the boat, and when they went by, he heard the singing, and he strained to get free, desperately wanting to reroute to the island, uh, but his plan worked, and the ship passed the dangerous island, and the sailors could not untie him. They untied him once he got past, but they eluded danger, they weren't shipwrecked, and they continued on their journey. This is probably the most famous Greek mythological story of the sirens. But there is another example or another story of the sirens um, about a sailor named Jason. No, no relation, obviously. And his men, Jason, also knew of the dangers of the sirens, but he used a different strategy. Instead of wax and rope, he had a man named Orpheus travel with him and play uh, the lute. And as long as Orpheus played, anyone who listened to his music were captivated and could only hear his music. And so each time Jason and his men were traveling, anytime they would get ready to pass by the island of the sirens, Orpheus would come out on the deck, the men would assemble on the deck, and Orpheus would begin playing. And the men were able to ignore the sirens because they were captivated by this beautiful music of, of Orpheus. Now, the reason I tell you the story today about the sailors and the sirens is because James is specifically going to write today and has written today about temptation and about trials, specifically about the trials that are happening internally inside of us. The first two weeks, we really kind of talked about outer trials, the circumstances that come into our life. But in verse 12, it says those who patiently endure testing and temptation, depending on what version of the Bible you use. Those Greek words are the same in the original translation, but there's a little bit of nuance. And what James is talking about here is not necessarily flat tires or, um, uh, you know, sickness or losing your job, not necessarily the outer circumstantial things that happen to us. Now James is talking about what happens to us internally when we face outer trials and outer trouble. And in essence, what James is saying is that every outer trial brings with it an inner trial. 
We know this to be true. That every trouble that we face on the outside brings with it an internal temptation. And in a way, James is saying that there are two ways, we're going to see this, that there are two ways to fight this temptation, to fight this pull that we feel to, to, to get pulled away. There's the Odysseus strategy and there's the Jason strategy, which I knew I, I should, we should have had a different name because it's not my strategy, it's, it's Jason and the story strategy. And, and the answer is to be captivated by something more beautiful, wow. to, to, to be captivated by something more compelling. That the way that we stop straying and the way that we stop giving into the temptation to drift and to, and to go towards the sirens in our life is not so much blindfolds, earplugs, and things like that as much as it is being captivated by something more beautiful in our life. And so many Christians that I, I, I know, uh, all of us, we could say all of us at different seasons of our life, we choose the Odysseus strategy. Just tie me up, you know? Like, have you ever felt that way? There's something in your life, there's a temptation in your life you don't want to give into, you're tired of falling, you're tired of tripping up, you're tired of doing it. And so your strategy is just willpower and sheer force. And it's like, tie me up, put earplugs in my ear, put a blindfold over me. Like I, if I just won't see it, hear it, smell it, be around it. Like I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm going to do everything in my power to stay away. I, I want the Odysseus strategy. And I was laughing, thinking about this this week because I was typing this up. I know myself and I know you, we can all think of times in our life where we wish somebody had tied us to our parents' couch instead of what we ended up doing. Anybody can agree with that? Like you think about some of the mistakes you've made in your life and it's like, if only someone would have tied me to the kitchen table on that Friday night or spring break 08. I don't know, that sounds personal. I don't know why, you know, that's not a word of prophecy. That's just like a spring break thing. And, and it, but but that, that, that phone call that I responded to or that choice that I make, if only I had been tied up to like my mom's kitchen table and I could have had to, I would have had to stay there and I wouldn't have made that choice. I wouldn't have gone down that path. I wouldn't be where I am today if only I had just, you know, been unable to respond in some way. Wow. This is the struggle that we face is that our plan to fight the enemy, our plan to fight the devil, the evil in our lives, the plan to fight temptation is sheer willpower and force. And if you were to think about where in your life right now you most often give in to temptation, you're probably going to find that your strategy is willpower and force, and it's not working. It's not working. I mean, it may work every now and then, but it's not working. Temptation keeps winning. And to be, listen, I want to be very clear. We're not talking about some spiritual mountaintop where you're never tempted, even Jesus, our Savior, our, our example, was tempted. So we're not talking about a spiritual high where temptation never comes against you. There are certain seasons and certain temptations where it's all you can do to survive, and a surviving is a winning, and we'll take it. But I think we all do have to admit this morning there has to be a better strategy than rope and blindfolds and earplugs. And, and James is telling us today, 
he's kind of showing us, he's going to show us, we're going to see these two strategies that we can hear something better than the sirens. We can want something better than the sirens. We can believe something better than, than the sirens. And so as we look through these verses 12 through 18, we're going to see three things. I want to tell you where we're going so you can go ahead and kind of map it out if you're a note taker. But we're going to learn three things today. These verses are going to teach us three things. Number one, we're going to learn why we need to endure temptation. Why does it even matter? Like if we're saved, we're going to go to heaven. Why does it matter what we do now? Why do we even need to endure temptation? Why don't we endure temptation? That's the second thing we're going to learn. And then how can we endure temptation? Why do we need to? Why don't we? And how we can? This is what we learn. So let's, let's look at that first one. Why do we need to en endure temptation? Verse 12 says, uh, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation, and afterward they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And this is a really, <clears throat> really important verse, because James is describing a benefit of living a godly a godly life. But if we're not careful, we can read something into the verse that's not there, where, where he says, afterward, they'll receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. If we're not careful, we can read this verse and we can think that it means that he'll give eternal life, that those who endure temptation are the ones who will be saved. And those are the ones who go to heaven. And those are the ones who God really loves. But that's not what this verse says. Remember, James is writing to people who are already believers. And he doesn't say that they'll receive eternal life. He says they'll receive a crown of life. This is, this is a real thing. This is something substantial. There's actually five different kinds of crowns in the Bible, and we're not going to get into the weeds on that, but this is one of those crowns, the crown of, of life. And so James tells us here that there is something that happens in our life whenever we endure an, an inner struggle, whenever we survive a temptation, that something happens to us that, that we can be blessed now, we can live a more blessed life, and we can be rewarded in the next life. These are things directly attached to us not giving into temptation. But we struggle so badly with this. We, we're kind of inundated with cancel culture. We're kind of struggled to believe that God would not give up on his end of the deal. This idea that it's, it's, it's faith in Jesus, but it's also proving to God that we're worth it. It's proving to God that we won't screw it up. It's proving to God that, you know, he didn't make a mistake on us. And so, God, I'll show you how worth it I was, but that's not the gospel. If what you read here is the idea that you've got to endure to prove something to God so that he doesn't give up on you, you don't understand the gospel. We are saved 100% through grace and faith in Jesus. But what we see here is that Christian character matters. 
James is not saying it's either salvation and being really godly or you're out. He's saying it's salvation, which is through faith and grace. You can't do anything to be saved. The grace of God saves you through faith in Jesus Christ. This is salvation. But beyond salvation, having nothing to do with what you did, there is a way of developing Christian character. And as you develop Christian character, you will will live a more blessed life and after your life is over when you stand before God the Bible teaches us that in some way and we don't know how this works but in some way there's going to be like a reward ceremony now the greatest reward is Jesus it's eternal life but there's also going to be the opportunity to be crowned in some way based on the life that we live now and don't get caught up about the crown who knows what the crown's like it's probably this was written by Greeks, so they were probably thinking more like wreaths around the neck or something for a winner of a competition. But the, the most important point is that how we live and the Christian character that is developed in us matters. But it's not the thing that makes us a Christian or doesn't make us a Christian. Don't get hung up on that. And why this matters so much to you and me is because it means that it's possible to be a Christian, but to live a miserable life because you never take the steps to develop Christian character. This is called discipleship. Discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, letting the Holy Spirit do the inner work, the formation of our souls that's making us more like Jesus Christ. This is called discipleship that we are following Jesus and he is making us. And this is why for a believer, trouble is so valuable because trouble and trials and enduring temptation shape and form us and develops in us Christian character. So this is why we need to endure temptation and inner trials because every victory is developing Christian character. Every, like, like a muscle, just for a basic analogy here, every time you, you, you get a little stronger, every time you endure temptation, you get a little bit stronger. Every time you say no to the sirens, you get a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger a little bit stronger, developing, being formed and shaped, that Christian character in your life. And that is making your life now more blessed. We don't have to feel guilty for being blessed by God as Christian character is being developed in us. Our life now can be more blessed and our life after this life, there will actually be some kind of reward in heaven for those who endure. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis described it like this. He was, he was writing during World War II times in and around World War II. And he was specifically talking about temptation. And he used this great uh, metaphor analogy. He, he talked about how every time you say no to temptation, it's like you're setting up another train station. You're making another entryway into enemy territory. And at every train station is another opportunity for you to get farther down the road in this fight that you are fighting against the devil. But that every time you give in to temptation, you're losing a train station. And so the ability to endure and the momentum and the power of consecutively enduring is making an entryway into this war that is happening for, for our souls. 
It matters. Christian character matters. What's being developed on the inside of us matters. The greatest reward is Jesus and salvation and eternal life. But it's not the only reward and it's not the only thing that matters. It's just the most important thing. That's why we need to endure. Which sounds good enough. You hear that? You say, I'm in. I want to I develop Christian character. I want to be a disciple. I want train stations. Come on, let's do this. So why don't we? Why don't we endure? James is going to teach a master class right here on why we give in to temptation so often. And honestly, I could use all my time and like another three hours on these few verses because they're so foundational to the way that we overcome sin and temptation in, in our lives. We're just going to take a couple of minutes to look at it. How, how, like, why, why do we not endure? Why do we give in to temptation? James is going to show us. And the first thing that he says to us is stop blaming God. Wow. Stop blaming God. Look at verse 13. He says, and remember, when you are tempted, because we're talking about enduring temptation. He says, and remember when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. What does this mean? It means that God is never testing you to fail you. Now, we know that God does test you. We, God tests us. All throughout Scripture, we see that God puts us in circumstances to test what is in our heart, the character, the godly Christian character that is being developed. He is testing us. But there's a very important distinction that James is saying here that he's never testing you to fail you. You say, well, how, how, are you, how could you be sure, Jason, that God's not being vindictive or jealous or setting me up to fail? Well, James tells us because God cannot be tempted. And the only way that God could have wrong motives for you would be if he gives in to the temptation to do something bad to you. And God cannot be tempted. There's never a time where God can give in to temptation to do you wrong. This means that at all times, in every way, there's never a time where God can be tempted to do anything but the right thing. Yes. I want you to hear that, because that's huge. Because yes. sometimes we get in these arm wrestling matches with God, and I want you to hear that, that there is never a time, it is not possible in the character of God for him to ever do anything for you that is not the right thing for you. And so James says, if you are struggling to endure temptation, stop blaming God. Now, I, don't, I rarely hear people say, and I rarely say myself, like, I mean, it's not my fault. God is tempting me. We don't use those words. But we do in some way kind of play the victim and blame God. We say, well, if he hadn't made me like this, or if God hadn't let me go there, or God hadn't let me been around that person, or been, you know, in that place, then... I wouldn't have done that. It's, it's not my fault. I mean, it was, it was beyond my control. And so we kind of blame him. When God tests us, he always puts us in a situation where we can pass the test. It's like someone going to school and the teacher saying, we're going to have a pop quiz today and you didn't know it was coming, and you failed the test, and you say, well, it's not my fault. She shouldn't have given us the test. It's not the teacher's fault. It's that the test revealed what you knew. 
And the Bible tells us, I want to read this to you in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The Apostle Paul is writing about the situations that we find ourselves in and the circumstances that God puts us in. This is a good one to memorize and write on a card or in your phone. Because 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is, what's that word? Faithful. He is full of faith. Cannot be tempted to do you wrong. He said, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. That's a valuable promise. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is good news. That there's never a moment or never a scenario that we are in that God puts us in. A circumstance or a test in our life where we cannot endure. No matter how strong it is. And it may have a stranglehold on your life, but there is never a temptation that is impossible to endure. And so if we can't blame God, if it's not God's fault that we keep giving in to temptation, whose fault is it? Well, this is, this is going to sting a little bit, but James says it's your fault. It's my fault. And this is going to sound harsh, and I tried to rewrite this a couple of times, but you know what? We're, we need to just hear it kind of how it is because the truth will set us free after it makes us mad. But we need to understand what's being taught here. And one of the reasons that trials and trouble are so valuable for a believer is because they reveal the truth. You don't really know the truth about yourself in prosperous times. You just don't. We say sometimes right here, you don't know who your friends are when you win the lottery. You know who your friends are when you need help moving. Right? Tests reveal the truth. And they force us to take a hard, honest look at who we are. And, and, and this means that every time we give in to temptation, it's because we want to do it. Every time you give in to temptation, every time I give in to temptation, it's because it's what I most want to do. And we rationalize our struggles. I make mistakes, but that's not who I am. But these verses, this teaching from James would disagree. We say, you know what? I, I did do that, but that's not who I am. It's just a mistake that I made. And it's true that it's not your identity as a person, but it's not true that it's not the type of person you are. If you are making choices and I am making choices that are sinful and giving into temptation, it means that I am the type of person who does the things and wants to do the things that I am doing. I'm the type of person who would, who would do that. And this is, much, this is a much more pessimistic view of who you are than what culture would tell you. Because culture would say, you're not that bad. The hand that's been dealt to you is unfair. And that could be very true. And there are all kinds of deep-rooted reasons why we do the things that we do. And it's at a subconscious level that we want what we want. 
But the Christian view of humanity is much more pessimistic and much more negative than the cultural view of you because the cultural view says you're not that bad, but the Christian view says like you're worse than that. You're helpless. You don't just need forgiveness, you need a savior. The reason you keep falling is because in the DNA of who you are is the type of person that wants to do these things that you're doing. You don't have to find this, but I was just thinking about this this week um, in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that I read uh, most mornings. And David is repenting for sin. And listen to what David says in verse, um, verse 4. And against you and you alone about sin, I've done what's evil on your sight. Look at this. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner from the, mother my moment, uh, from the mother, moment my mother conceived me. He says, you'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. What does this mean? David is saying that, God, whatever you could accuse me of, you're right. Whatever anyone could say about me. And there have been a few times where somebody's like, Oh, yeah, you know, Jason, like people think you're this, but you're really this. And I say, you don't even know the half of it. Like to God, like if God is, 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 is accusing me of something, which is why I need Jesus, whatever he's saying is right because sin is in there. The ability to destroy my life is in there. Culture says you're not that bad. Christianity says you are so bad that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. Only Jesus. And so this is incredibly discouraging, right? Are you feeling good today? You're hot, the AC's not working, and I'm telling you, you're a terrible person. <laughs> I'm sweating like a hostage up here. This is one of those times where you've got to go through bad news to get to good news, because if we just jump right to the good news, we won't understand why it's good news. If your version of Christianity says you are able, you are strong, you can do it, God is going to come alongside and help you because if you muster enough strength, you'll be able to do it. That's a Christianity where your faith is in yourself. And when you fail, you will feel awful about yourself because you failed and you let God down. That is not the gospel and that is not Christianity. The gospel says you need way more than forgiveness. You need a savior. And while you were hopeless, you are not worthless because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. And now the power of the life of Christ is living inside of you. And it will not happen instantly. But if you will allow the Holy Spirit through obedience and submission to form Christian character inside of you, you will be able to live a Christian life and move past the stumbling blocks that keep making you fall and live a victorious life, a blessed life here, a rewarded life later. You don't have to be a Christian who is miserable because you cannot overcome the sin in your life. The message of Christianity is that it's not you and your willpower. It is the spirit of the life of Christ that gives you the power over sin and death. And so the more you trust in yourself, you're either going to get more prideful or more miserable. But the more we trust in the spirit of Christ in our life, and allow him to shape and form us, the more the change happens from the inside out. And I wanna show you um, an image that uh, 
I sketched out this week. They're going to throw it up on the screen and for those online. This is something that uh, a friend of mine, Brandon, uh, has been working on. He's a psychologist and he's been working on, he calls this the structure of self. And uh, Brandon taught this to me um, several months ago. And I actually mentioned it in the Galatians series. Uh, but such a powerful thing that has really transformed my life in a lot of ways. And I want to teach it to you. But this is called the structure of life. Do we have it up there? Yeah, there it is. This is, this is the soul. Go ahead and throw it back up there, guys. This is the way that you are wired as a human being. Start at the bottom. Your life begins with the desires in your heart. And this is what James said, by the way. He said, temptation comes from our own desires. What James is saying is, sin always starts at the bottom of who you are as a person. And so it starts at our desires. The desires that we have form our beliefs. These are foundational beliefs, the rules and the code that we live our life by. And then our beliefs shape our emotions, how we feel in a given moment or day. And then the way that we feel shapes what we think, the thoughts that we have. And then after our beliefs or after our desires have given our life beliefs and after our beliefs have given our life emotions and our emotions have given our life thoughts, then we act out in a physical way. And this is the, the physical self is the life that you live publicly the interactions you have with people, the choices you make, the schedule that you keep, the things you do in secret, the things you do in public, the things you post online, the, the, the food you make for dinner, the, you know, the, the jobs you take. This is the physical self. This is the outer world that you, that you have and that you, and that you live in. And the, and, and the challenge for a lot of us is that we try to defeat sin above the line. We try to defeat sin in the outer life. We say, I keep doing this and I need to stop doing this. So get some rope and tie me to my couch on Friday night so that I'll stop acting in a way I don't want to act. But that's not how you defeat sin. Because whatever is happening above the line is only happening because of what's happening beneath the line. This is not just Brandon or what I'm saying to you. This is... What James is telling us, that the reason you are tempted by sinful things that are meant to destroy your life is because in the deepest part of your soul, you want those things. If you didn't want them, they would not tempt you. I know that's really deep and it'll hit you in 30 minutes, but I want you to think about that for just a second. If you didn't want it, it wouldn't tempt you but you want it. In the deepest part of your soul, there are desires that you have. Now, here's where it gets interesting, at least to me. Let me nerd out here for a second, that this word desires in verse 13, he says, temptation comes from our own desires. This desire word is all in the New Testament. The original Greek, the Greek word is epithemia. Epithemia. We talked about this in Jonah and we talked about this in Galatians, that the, the way the Bible talks about desires, we think about desires more in like a sexual way. But the way that this word, epithemia, is, is translated is literally over desires. And so James is not saying that the sin in your life comes from the five big vices that you have. He's saying that temptation, the sirens in your life come from over desires, which could be good desires or bad desires. 
When the Bible says desires, it's not talking about wanting bad things. It's talking about wanting things too badly. Get this. Anytime in the New Testament, or almost every time in the New Testament, when you see the word desires, it's not just talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's talking about anything in your life that you want too badly. Now, why is this important? Because that means wanting meth or wanting to be a mom can both be deadly to your soul. Of course, there are things that we could choose that would, on the outside of who we are, look worse for the people around us. But what's happening on the inside of us could be exactly the same. And we say to ourselves, what I'm wanting is not that bad, Jason. I agree. It's just that you want it too badly. And James says that until you get to desire, until you understand what you want, until you understand the deepest longings of who you are, you will never truly be able to overcome sin in your life because the problem is not what you're doing. The problem is what you want. And I heard recently a definition for sin that I thought was so good. This person said, sin is trying to find your self-esteem in anything other than Jesus. I grew up in a traditional church environment. Most of you know my story. I always thought sin was like four things. You know, it was like sex, um, R&B music, um, you know, alcohol and something else. I don't know. Some of y'all grew up in that house too. You know, you're like, yeah, I know what album you're talking about. Um, but that's not, that's such a, that's such a ridiculous, immature view of sin. Sin is anything that we are pursuing in order to find self-esteem outside of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this explains why over-desires are so dangerous because we're convinced we have to have whatever it is in order to be somebody. I've got to prove my worth to God. And in a very basic spiritual way, it may be you trying to be a really good Christian, but we learned in Galatians that it's, out, it's way outside of that. You can be lost in a bar or a Bible study, but you can be trying to be a good mom to prove yourself to God, trying to be successful to prove yourself to God, trying to be a millionaire to prove yourself to God, trying to be funny to prove yourself to God. Like there is something about me that makes me worth something, and I'm going to have that so that I can say, see God, I'm worth something. But this is why it doesn't work with Christianity because Christianity says you're already worth something. The life of Jesus Christ. If you define your self-worth through attaining the thing you want or the things you most want in life, these are the things that shape your beliefs about life and your emotions and your thoughts and your actions that are not the person that God wants you to be. And so here's what I want to do for just a moment. I'm going to give us a chance to have some silence. And I'm going to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to maybe in this moment help us identify some of those things that we want the most. There is something that you want at your core, at the center of your being. There's something that you believe if you had it, you would be complete or you would be whole or you wouldn't be insecure anymore or you wouldn't be afraid anymore. 
And listen, it's not sex or money or power. Those are just the ways that you get what you really want. Please hear that. What you want most in life is not a million dollars. You want what a million dollars will get you. It's not a spouse. It's what you believe a spouse will give you. And if you really want to get into it in psychology terms, there's really only four things human beings want. I wrote them down here, I think. Order or control, safety, community, or affirmation. Now, we're not going to get into that. But there's something you want, and what you're doing is an attempt to get it. And so I would love for you in this moment, maybe 30 seconds, we'll just see here. I want to just let there be some silence in the room and the opportunity for us to ask God to help us to see into ourselves and understand what it is we want, the deepest desire of our heart. What is it that we want? If we had this, we, we wouldn't feel like we feel anymore. I'm going to be quiet. Let's just have a moment here. Maybe in that time, things came to mind, images came to mind, words came to your heart. We talked last week about needing wisdom for understanding what's happening inside of us and tests reveal the truth. And as hard as it may be to face the dark sides of who we are, we'll never be able to overcome the power of sin until we understand why we want what we want so badly. So maybe as you're praying this week or spending time with God this week, maybe you would begin to ask him, God, will you help me understand the deepest desires of my heart? Is it to be viewed as important? Is it to be in control or powerful? Is it to be affirmed by somebody, to feel beautiful? What is it that I want? And if your faith was 100% complete and perfect, if you were absolutely like Jesus, then you would have no desires that would lead you to sin. Jesus over and over again in the gospel said, my desire is to do the will of the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, because I'm 100% God, my only desire is to do the will of God. But we're not like Jesus and we're not 100%. Our faith is incomplete. Our faith is imperfect. That's what we learned the first week, which is why we need these experiences to begin to make us more like Jesus. So if we were 100% like Jesus, we would say, my only desire is to do what God wants me to do. But we're not. And so as you begin to identify that desire or desires that you want more than anything else in the world, here's what's so powerful and what has been a game-changing thing for me is you can trace every sin in your life back to that answer. Please hear this. 
Whenever you have an answer for what do you want most in life that if you had it, you wouldn't feel the way you feel anymore, you can trace every sin in your life back to that answer. You are either sinning to get it or you're sinning because you're coping with not having it. I don't want to rush past this. Once you answer that question, what is the thing I want more than anything else in my life? If I had it, I wouldn't feel the way I feel anymore. I'd be worth something. Whenever you answer that question, every sin in your life is either you trying to attain that thing or cope that you don't have it. You're searching for self-esteem in something other than Jesus Christ. And so this is what James means when he says temptation gives birth to sin. Throw that back up there for just a second. We're going to get to our third point. James is not giving us the structure of self. We're adding it in. He skips from desire straight to physical self. But I want you to understand what's happening. Desire, what you want more than anything else in the world, is shaping the code and the rules that you live your life by. And when those rules are broken or when life goes against the beliefs that you have, your emotions are, you're depressed, you're angry, you're sad, you're jealous, you're, your emotions are, or you have it, you attained it, you got it. And you're, and you're confirming the beliefs you have about life and your emotions are like, you did it, you're awesome, you're the man, you are complete, you do have it together. And you begin to think thoughts about who you are and who people should think you are. And, and then you begin to live a certain way. And what happens is desire gives birth to sin and then desire has a grandchild and that is death as it is allowed to grow, train stations. So for just the moment that we have left, we've, we, we've looked at why we need to endure and we've looked at why we don't endure because we're not being honest about what we want the most. Let me just take a moment to, to give you this third point, why, why we can endure, how we can endure. What's the alternative? Look at verse, look at verse 18. We, we know, we just read that sin gives birth to death, or desire gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. There's a lot of birthing going on here, but there's other birthing too with God. Look at verse 18. He says, he chose to give birth to us, God did, by giving us his true word, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. This is self-esteem. This is where we find our worth. So I want you to see the difference in what desire and sin say to you and what God says to you. Uh, Another mere Christianity quote for you here, but C.S. Lewis defined it like this. He said, he said, sin is an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. But that is the opposite of what it means to have a relationship with God. A relationship with God is an ever-increasing desire for an ever-increasing pleasure. And so we're presented with two options here. The first option says, I want something more than anything else in the world and I don't have it. And until I have it, I'm not worth anything. And the other option we, we have here says, I am the prized possession of God. When God sees me, he sees me as beautiful and whole. 
He sees Jesus when he sees me. I get credit for the life of Christ because Christ gets credit for my life, which is why he had to die on the cross. And so this desire is promising me, this temptation is promising me, you're not enough unless you do it or unless you have it. And on the other side, the gospel says to you, you are enough, you already have it. The prized possession of God. One more time, guys, throw that back up on the screen for me if you can. I want to show you just how this, how this could work if we begin to believe that we are the prized possession of God. And I know you were looking for like a step one, step two, step three, like accountability software and, you know, like a Tuesday night thing. And listen, that's trying to solve the problem above the line. What would it look like if we really begin to believe that we are the prized possession of God? In a, in a perfect ideal environment, it would mean that our deepest desire is God's will. Our deepest desire is whatever God wants to do in us. Our deepest desire is whatever God has planned. We are 100% in for whatever God wants, however God wants to do it. We just want God and we want what God wants. This would be our deepest desire. Well, well what kind of beliefs does that shape in our life. Well, I can tell you one belief, you would start really believing that your life has a purpose because God is doing something and you're a part of what God is doing. And, and, the, and the rule that you would live your life by is that what you want is not as important as what God wants and your life has a purpose. And when you woke up today and when you went into your job today, that you are, you are being sent on behalf of God and, and you're attuned to what God is doing. And you begin to have beliefs about yourself that you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to be funny. You don't have to be the life of the party. You don't have to be the person who drinks the most. You don't have to be the person who, who, who you know, is always with somebody because you recognize that you don't have these beliefs about life anymore, that you're not something. What kind of emotions does this create in our life? I, I could think of a couple like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. How could you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control if you don't have something you believe you have to have more than anything else in the world? You can't. You just can't. But if you have what you believe you need more than anything else in the world, which is the love of Jesus Christ, salvation, the code you live your life by changes, which means the emotions that you're feeling in your life is changing. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control, love. The, the, it, it's, you feel differently about your life because you're not living to prove something. You're living knowing that you have received worth. What kind of thoughts begin to shape in, in our life? Well, instead of thoughts saying, how can I get what I need? Our thoughts begin to be, how could I serve? How could I love? How could I be more present in this moment? How could I be more compassionate? How could I be more empathetic? How, how could I be aware of what God is doing around me. We would begin to think on things the Bible says that are more lovely and pure and noble. Well, you can't think on things that are lovely, pure, and noble if in the deepest parts of your heart you don't have what you think you have to have in order to be somebody. It's only when you believe you are somebody. What kind of life comes out of someone who wants God's will, believes they don't have anything to prove, 
is filled with love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, thinking thoughts that are pure, noble, and lovely. What kind of life comes out of that? It's a life that loves the Lord God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as their self. It's the kind of life you live. Now, listen, I know that's pretty idealistic, but it's not impossible. And I think sometimes we've minimized Christianity to just like get saved and tie yourself to the mass of the boat. But no, no. God wants to develop Christian character inside of you and bless a life and reward a life that is changing from the inside out. He wants to change your desires. I'm not talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm talking about the thing you want more than anything else in the world. You want to be taken seriously. You want to be accepted. And until you answer what that is, you'll just keep running around doing stuff, trying to get it. But the moment and every day you wake up and you believe that God has given birth to you, has given you life because you know the truth about him and that out of all creation, he chose you to be his prized possession. That when he sees you, he sees a beauty. It changes what you want and why you want it and how you feel and what you think and what you do. I hope this makes sense to you. I know that it's not <clears throat> moving out or, or something like that. It's deeper than that. But my, my prayer, and we're going to pray a prayer together, but my prayer is that we would stop trying to just behave better and we would allow the Holy Spirit to change who we are at the deepest levels of our soul and form and shape something beautiful in us. And it is the testing and the trials that give us the opportunity to know the truth of who we are. So when you came in, you got a worship guide and on there is a congregational prayer. We're gonna pray this together and then the team's gonna come. Matter of fact, if you guys wanna go ahead and come and they're gonna sing a beautiful hymn about Christ alone and it's where our worth is and our value comes from. And during that song, you're gonna have the opportunity to take communion. And the reason you're able to take that communion is because you're a prized possession of God. But before we do that, we're gonna pray a prayer together. We've been doing this the last couple of weeks. If you just joined us, that bottom part that's in bold, we'll pray that together. I'm gonna pray the first part but you'll come in on Faced With This Temptation and we'll pray this together. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to have it would birth death against my soul. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me the grace to follow you. Let obedience build something beautiful. Let the faithful progression of small choices become like stones laid end to end, creating a path that leads me closer to you. O oh Lord, in the furnace of temptation, do not let me be deceived, believing that I might find the peace and satisfaction I long for apart from your presence. Will you join me? Faced with this temptation, 
I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shattered, so be my life. I am selfish, so remake me now. Create in me new desires according to the better designs of your love. Amen.